13 and 14 and transitional for the children of Israel. The first generation who came out of Egypt that God delivered from Pharaoh's hand. Their people being in that land for, well, according to the word of God, the same day that they entered in, 430 years later, on the very same day, they entered out, they went out of Egypt, I guess not entered out, but went out of Egypt. And uh, that first generation, it's been well over a year now. They're moving toward the second year. And God has taken them from Mount Sinai. He's given them uh, laws to govern their people by, laws by which they should worship the Lord had the tabernacle not only put together, erected, and anointed for service, have the priesthood. They're on the move, and he brings them to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And it's there where the spies would enter in to spy out the land for 40 days and 40 nights. But it was also there at Kadesh Barnea where the children of Israel would decide to rebel against God and to not enter into the promised land. And for their rebellion, God would judge them and they would spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. So if the Lord delights in us, that comes from the words of Caleb as he is trying to encourage the people to let's go, let's get into the land. If the Lord delights to... uh, delights in us and that's always interesting because that little word if sometimes contextually could be translated as since the Lord delights in us they already knew that the Lord had delighted in them because the Lord had delivered them and had put up with them and had provided for them daily the manna and had sustained them and yet they were ready once again to go back to Egypt. So Numbers chapter 13, two key verses. It's the words of Caleb, where Numbers 13, verses 30 and 31, he says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And so, Father, I pray that you would just bless us in the teaching of your word here tonight. And, Lord, they were, the children of Israel, concerned about the giants in the land, the walled cities. They were coming up against a formidable foe, and they decided that, It was a battle that they could not wage. Lord, I know that sometimes in our lives we come up to what seems to be formidable cities and giants that there's no way that we can overcome them. And sometimes, Lord, we're like the children of Israel. We choose not to obey. And at other times, Lord, we might be like Joshua and Caleb who have the courage to say to the people, let's go up. We can prevail. Help us, Lord, to be such that we would have such faith in our lives, Lord, that we would see the giants, see the walled cities, see the great challenges before us, but to be able to say, if God is for us, then who could possibly be against us? Help us to learn this lesson, at least here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the 12 spies, And um, reading here in this first section, verses 1 through 20, 1 through 16, here as we get into introducing the 12 spies, the command of the Lord, verse 1. And I'm going to tell you up front, I'm just not going to read the names of the 12 tribes, nor uh, the names of the men that went in to spy out the land, or the men's fathers. So I can read the names of the 12 tribes. But most of the men and their fathers, there's only two that stand out to us, and that is Joshua and Caleb. So we'll look at them. But the others, um, though they are mentioned here, and their leaders in their tribes, their names that 
really don't stand out. In fact, one of the reasons they don't stand out beyond this chapter, God will judge them and they will have an abrupt ending. So the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am given to the children of Israel from each tribe of your fathers. You shall send a man, every one, a leader among them. So Moses went and sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now, these are the name, verses 4. Uh, let's see, it goes down through 16. He names the 12 men. He names their fathers. He names what tribe they are from, from the names that are significant to us that will continue to play out beyond these chapters is that of Joshua and Caleb. So Caleb, verse 6, comes from the tribe of Judah. And Joshua, we find in verse 8, was of the tribe of Ephraim. And his given name was Hoshea. He was the son of Nun. But in verse 16, as they're recounting the names, these are the names of the men of whom Moses sent out to spy the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. So it's Moses who made the name change for Joshua. So the children of Israel, they're in their second year since coming out of Egypt. And it was time for them to leave the wilderness and enter into the promised land. I had said that the wilderness stage for the children of Israel, there was a portion of it that was proper. They were right where God wanted them to be. The Lord preparing them as a people, as a nation, giving them laws, uh, giving them an understanding of who they were to be as they entered into the land. So part of the wilderness experience was proper, but they would extend their stay by, well, 38 plus years, it appears, according to Scripture. The people were unwilling, though, to go out in faith. Now we have to combine Numbers 13 with Moses' recount in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, as Moses is telling the children of this current generation that we're talking about tonight, as Moses is telling their children about what their parents did, we learn in Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 23, just going to grab a couple little portions out of that. When Moses said, look, the Lord your God has sent the land, set the land before you, go up and possess it, possess it. The people being unwilling to go, asked Moses to first send spies to search out the land for us, bring back word to us of the way which we should go up. So here we learn, not in Numbers 13, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, and I just read a few portions of that section, that it was the people who said, you have to send them some spies. You have to have them show us the way. And by sending in the spies, that was God's permissible will because he knew the hearts of the people. Of the 12 spies... Ten would persuade the nation to not obey God and God's will for their lives. While the other two, Joshua and Caleb, they would stand alone against their fellow spies and try to convince their people to obey God. For their righteous stand, God re would reward Joshua and Caleb with long life as they would be the only two of their generation that would actually enter into the promised land. That's really something to think about because uh, we know the age of Joshua when he died was 110 years old. We know the age of Caleb when he asked Joshua, let me go take my possession. And we learn all this in the book of Joshua, but God promised that I could have every feet where my Every place where my feet trotted during those 40 days and 40 nights when we were spies in the land. And he said, I am 85 years old now and I'm as strong today as I was back then. So we get an idea of the age of 
Caleb and possibly Joshua being around the same age, right around 40 years old at this time, but when they would ultimately go into the promised land, being the only two of their generation to survive the 40 years, that meant everybody under them was at least 20 years younger or more. And so they would truly be the old guys of the nation. And yet what great reward God gave them, not only with long life because of their obedience to God's call, but also they would maintain significant roles among the people. The very first judge, and we learned this in the book of Judges, that would judge over Israel was the nephew of Caleb. So we think of Caleb being a godly man who raised up and his influence, even his nephew was influenced to be a man of God and was the first judge of Israel. So God would bless them in many ways. 17 through 25, then Moses sent them out to spy the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell there are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not, be, good, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And that is uh, simply Rehob is north of the Sea of Galilee. So they entered uh, south in the nation of Israel and pretty much Israel's on the hook of the Mediterranean Sea. So they kind of followed that hook straight up the land past the northern side of the Sea of Galilee up towards Syria today. So they went in from the wilderness of Zen as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron and Hyman and Shishai and Tilmai, the descendants of Anak were there. And so three giants named there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskol, and there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They brought some of the pomegranates and figs in the place they called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel had cut down there. And so Eshkol meaning cluster. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they spent 40 days, 40 nights spying out the land entering in the south, Kadesh, we'll get that name. I've been saying it. We haven't read it yet, but we know that this is the place. Kadesh Barnea was the place where God called them to enter in, and they refused to go. They discovered that they were descendants of Anak, which descendants of giants, three of them still living. There in the valley of Eshkol, they had such a large cluster of grapes that Two men would carry it on a pole between them. They brought pomegranates and figs. The city of Hebron is mentioned as being seven years older. I put five in my notes, but scripture says seven. Then Zoan of Egypt and the city of Zoan, it would have been familiar. They probably helped build or repair. They were slaves there. But for Israel dating this, they realized that this was an ancient city. The city of Zoan was familiar to the free slaves of Egypt and mentioned six more times in the Bible. And it was a great and important city in that capital of the Hashkos or the shepherd kings. There was a period of the shepherd kings that ruled for more than 500 years over Egypt. And so not really belonging to the nation of Israel, but they ruled over that. This was their kingdom. It was at the frontier of Goshen. So that was where Israel settled in Goshen. And it's where Pharaoh held his courts, according to the Bible commentators. 
And the Greeks called this place Tanis. That's a familiar name to us today. But they were just dating the city. Hebron had been around for a long time. So the spies, 26 through 33, they give their report. They came back to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation, to the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh and brought back word to them until the, all the congregation showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We went to the land where you have sent us, and truly it flows with milk and honey. And it, this is its fruit. So they gave evidence of the fruitfulness of the land. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So the giants, we saw the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land into the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. And Caleb quieted the people before Moses. So you get this sense of the nation just ooing and owing, owing, ooh and awe, not because of uh, their amazement, but because of fright. They're taken back by the words of the ten spies, but Caleb, he tried to quiet the people, and he said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in there are men of great statures. So they saw three giants. Now they're saying they're all giants. They're all big. We saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So Joshua and Caleb, they came with a good report. They would encourage the people, let's go, we can do this. And I mentioned Joshua because we know that he stands with Caleb, although Caleb does most of the speaking at this point. Caleb said, even though there's giants, he had such faith, he said, we are able to overcome it. But the other ten spies... They've now exaggerating. They admitted the land was flowing with milk and honey. But they talked about the wall cities and the giants, and they caused the people to greatly fear. And they said, we are not able to go up against the people because they are stronger than we. We are as grasshoppers in their sight. So their fear turned Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, a place where they were encamped, a place of defeat rather than victory. I titled this section, get back to my title page. I titled numbers 13 in my notes, a place of victory or defeat. So they came to that place where the choice was theirs. It would be rather victory or to have defeat. And they chose to side with defeat. We would never want to do that, but it was their fear that caused them to do that. And so they would not go forward in faith. Caleb, he saw with his own eyes. Joshua, they saw with their own eyes. And they were willing to go. He said, it's ours. Oftentimes, we can come to places like Kadesh in our lives, places where big decisions are made that will change the direction of our lives for either good or bad. Sometimes our Kedish can cause us to take a step of faith like Joshua or Caleb, and we're ready and willing to do whatever the Lord has called us to do. At other times, we might lose our faith. We might be weak in the faith. And what God intended for our victory then becomes a place of wavering and at times a place of defeat. Yet the faith of Joshua and Caleb caused me to think of a couple of verses of Scripture in Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him 
who loves us. Through him who loves us. And Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On the other hand, the unbelief of the ten spies who had influenced their whole nation to revolt against God was highlighted by the author of Hebrews who wrote this, Hebrews 3.16-19, through 19, writing about this time. For who, having heard, rebelled indeed, It was not all who had come out of Egypt led by Moses, now with whom he was angry 40 years. It was not with those who sinned, or sorry, was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness, and to whom did not swear that they would enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of their unbelief. So, Here, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, he's saying God wasn't angry with everyone. It was just those who had unbelief. And because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter in. We'll get that in chapter 14. Not able to enter into the promised land. So I thought about this as I was reading it. And this is old time week around here because... Uh, We're coming up officially our 30th anniversary here at the church. On December 12th, we held this celebration last weekend and had a wonderful time. But 30 years ago, plus in the summer of 1992, when people were already around this church working, and I had no idea of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, I was contemplating uh, moving our family out to California in order that I could go to the school of ministry. And uh, things just seemed to not go our way in several areas of our lives. There was a recurring phrase that my wife Lily had that summer when things wouldn't go our way. She would simply say, That's because we're supposed to be in California. So she was already ready to go. I was the one that was kind of holding back. She was like Joshua and Caleb saying, hey, we can take it. We can go if you're willing. And I I was trying to contemplate and make the choice. I, I know part of it is, you know, I wasn't, it's amazing to me now, but I never considered myself much of a student in school. I only went through high school. Um, at that point, and I hadn't been in school since I was 18, I was 32 years old, I didn't even know if I could. If I got out there, how well I would do. And so I'm sure that was playing into it, and plus, hey, we were leaving it all. And yet, it was Lily, that recurring line, that's because we're supposed to be in California. Eventually, I caught up with her faith. And I knew that things were not going as planned that summer because we were planning life. We were, we had already submitted to have, uh, in addition, uh, get a loan that we could put an addition on our house. We were planning on staying and God was interrupting our plans. In fact, when we sold our house and it never, I mean, we signed the papers and I think it was, it never went on the market. The realtor called and said, we got three people who want to look at it. So it never even made it to the viewing weekend. Three people came in. One of the ladies ended up buying the home. And she said, this is the house that I've always dreamed of. And I thought to myself, I thought it was the house that I always dreamed of. (laughs) I was the one working on it. (laughs) It was my vision that, you know, remodeled this 1923 home. And apparently not. God had a different house in mind for us at a later date. May I encourage you to walk in the Spirit in such a way that you know that you're being led by the Spirit and that you are living in the Spirit. Those words coming from Galatians 5:16 through 25, but those specifically, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live in the Spirit. And to walk this way will cause places like Kadesh Barnea to become places of victory rather than defeat. 
Before we move on to chapter 14, just a side note, you guys probably know this, but Joshua's original name given to him by his parents, Hoshea, found in verse 16. Hoshea means salvation or delivered. But Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Now, Joshua is the Hebrew name of the Greek name translated Jesus. Yehovah is salvation. And so, in a sense, Joshua would become a type of Savior, just as Moses is to the children of Israel here. He is a type of Savior to the children of Israel. Joshua would be also a type of Savior. His name fits perfectly. Jehovah is salvation. So praying the words of God, this is something that I've probably don't do enough, but I've done it often in my life. I think it's a good way to pray, especially when we don't know what we should be praying for or how to pray. This is something that we find Moses doing in a desperate situation because they refuse to enter in the promised land. Chapter 14 is going to deal with this same situation, but take it a little further. And it describes the extent of Israel's rebellion and God's judgment against them. So verses 1 through 10a, they're ready to return to Egypt. All the congregation, by the way, they've already, just a few weeks ago, we studied about Israel, the mixed multitude, lusting about the food of Egypt in their hearts. They had already surrendered, uh, dreaming about the onion and the garlic and the leeks. And all they had was manna, manna, manna to eat every day, morning, noon, and night. And so in their hearts, they'd already turned. Now they're ready to physically go. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron And the whole congregation said to them, If we had only died in the land of Egypt, or if we had died in this wilderness, (laughs) well, they're going to get their wish, but anyways. Or if we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, verse 4, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. I like the son of Nun. That's a lot easier for me to say. Whoever were among those who had spied out the land tore their clothes. So those two. Joshua and Caleb, they're tearing their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out was exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, the land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. So the children of Israel acting like the crybabies that they had been for the last year plus. But here through the night, they're crying, they're weeping, they're murmuring against Moses and Aaron. But most importantly, they were doing these things against God. The people were ready to choose a new leader. They were ready to return to Egypt. It caused Moses and Aaron to fall on their faces before the whole assembly. Although not mentioned, I believe that Moses and Aaron were falling on their faces before the people. It was their immediate reaction to seek God's face and to make intercession for the people. It doesn't say that here, but that's what I believe has taken place I get that, and we can find it in several other places, but Numbers 16, 22, when the sons of 
Korah, when Korah rebelled with 250 of the men, saying that, why should Moses and Aaron get all the glory here? Aren't we leaders also? So in Korah's rebellion, when that happened, number 1622, once again we find Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation. So they fell on their faces and made intercession for the people. I believe that's what's happening here, although scripture is silent to that. Moreover, in remorse of what the people were plotting, Joshua and Caleb, they they tore their clothes. They tried to encourage them to trust God, to enter into the land, to take possession of the land. In their encouragement to the people, Joshua and Caleb pointed out three things. First, the land was an exceedingly good land. The land is good. It is flowing with milk and honey, just as God had promised. Second, if the Lord delights in us, he will give us the land. If the Lord, we might be able to say, well, now it's an iffy thing. <laughs> God did delight in them. He brought them out of Egypt. They should have known this. They had seen the many miracles. Not only what God did in judging the Egyptians, bring them out, dividing the Red Sea, bring them through on dry ground, but providing daily, providing food for them and all the miracles that they had seen. God's Shekinah glory being in the midst of their camp, the fire by day, the cloud by night. So there was a point to where we could say, since the Lord delights in us, he will give us the land. But here it's an if because... God did not delight in what they were doing at this time because of their rebellion. So first, the land was good, just as God promised. Second, God will give us the land if he delights in us. Third, the people of the land are our bread. Hey, they're giants. It's just more bread to eat. <laughs> it's a jumbo loaf instead of a small loaf. Doesn't matter. God's going to be with us because their protection has departed from them because the Lord is with us. And for this, they were nearly stoned to death. Romans 8.31, this was the attitude of Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And this reminds us that just because we stand in the right as far as our faith is concerned, stand upon the word of God. It does not mean that it would cause us to avoid trials from the unbelieving world around us. Pastor Michael McClure, Calvary Chapel pastor in San Diego County, during the whole COVID crisis, and I'm bringing it up for a reason, had their church, Michael McClure personally, and plus the church, more so, over $2 million in fines against their church because they continued to meet. They decided that if hardware stores, Home Depots, Menards, Lowell's, whatever they have out there, strip clubs, uh, pot dispensaries, alcohol stores, liquor stores were all okay to be open, then the church more so should be open for the people. And they continue to meet. I mentioned it for a reason because they won one of the cases from the, I believe it was the California Supreme Court this week, where $200,000 of those fines were wiped off, saying, no, you're not responsible for that. So that was, they're just ebbing away at the victories right now, but they are being victorious. But they took a stand. And that case that they won was not only Michael McClure's Calvary Chapel, but another church in that same area, same county that stood uh, not a Calvary Chapel. Other churches were taking that stand as well. So they won the suit. That's great. 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, in no way should I think we should try to cause um, cause suffering, like flaunt it, 
in such a way that we bring trouble on ourselves. There are some pastors, a big issue today, the LTBG2QA+, the uh, 212 different gender plus whatever they have today. It keeps growing, and now there's the um, Support of Marriage Act going through Senate and through the House, and they're trying to get a lot done before the Republicans get control of the House in January. So we're going to see a lot of things come down in the next month, really, month and a week. We don't have much left, but it's going to get more difficult once it should get more difficult. We do have a lot of rhinos in the Republican parties, um, Republican in name only. That's what that means, rhinos. Uh, they vote Democrat often, so it may not be much different, but we're hoping it will be. So they're trying to get a lot accomplished that will go against the beliefs of the church. So there's this marriage amendment act that they're going to, and really just saying that marriage can be anything. It's really a Pandora's box that they're trying to open up. And I will continue to teach God's design according to his word. And it might cost me someday to stand firm in the position of the word of God in many of these areas that they're trying to outlaw against the church. And they're saying right now that the church won't be impacted by these things. Don't worry, but it's going to impact the church. If it's going to impact our whole country, it will impact our church. It's only a matter of time. But there are some pastors who will preach and then send the copy of the message to Washington. Now, they're asking for trouble. If that's what God calls them to do, let them go at it. I don't think we should seek out trouble, but I think we should stand. If the Lord causes us to stand up, to enter into a land like the promised land for them, to stand before giants, then we should take that stand. But if the Lord's not in it, then we shouldn't go. So we really need to uh, seek the will, will of the Lord. So we, during COVID, we didn't have the same issues as the churches out in California. We opened rather quickly compared to a lot of the churches in the area. Um, I've never, before 2020, I never called the health department. I never called, um, not for any situation, our church sheriffs, because uh, we're in the county, Lake County sheriffs, uh, never listened or came in on uh, religious uh, meetings with the health department that I was zooming in on. And there was a point to where it eventually, I eventually realized that they were not telling truthful things. And there's a point to where I didn't bother too much with any of that anymore. But we opened rather early. When we opened, I had documentation here at the church ready to present saying that we have a right to be here, but it never got challenged. I did talk to the health department um, because uh, that when they were trying to do contact tracing, uh, we got a couple of phone calls about that before, but I was ready to give a defense for the work that we were doing here at the church, but it never really got challenged. I'm glad, but Illinois was in a different place. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We have a governor who's won a second term. He's pretty much spent most of his first term with executive powers, uh, emergency powers, and he continues to up them, just like our president upped it for our nation until June, I think, of 2023. So they're staged to enact things, even now in California and Los Angeles County, they're talking about putting masks on again for the people. We might not be out of the woods yet. So how are we going to stand when challenges come against us? We need to pray about those things and make sure that we're following what the Lord puts on our hearts as a people, not flaunting it before others, but faithfully taking our stand. And if we should be caused to suffer, then we suffer. And if the Lord blesses us, then um, 
He might bless us through suffering. He might bless us through not suffering and just have people find us and want to worship with us because of our stand of faith. We need to hold that ground. So 10b, we pick up through verse 19. Now the glory of the Lord appeared. We left off. The people are taking stones up to stone Joshua and Caleb. And we need to get out of mind little rocks. They would pile them with stones. Usually when they stone someone, they'd build a heap over them. You wouldn't even see the person anymore. So they're getting ready to do that. The glory of the Lord then appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. God put a stop to it right there. Then, all the, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe in me with all the signs which I have performed among them? I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And so Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. So the Egyptians will talk to the inhabitants of the promised land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people and that you, Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands above them and you go before them in the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So the people already heard about God from Egypt into the promised land. That's why Joshua and Caleb were able to say that they had no defense. Verse 15, now if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak saying, because the Lord is not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. So it would be a bad witness to the nations, Lord. That's what Moses is praying. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So at this point, God intervenes. His glory appears at the tabernacle. So God stops the attempted stoning against Joshua and Caleb. And he seems ready to reject the descendants of Abraham and his covenant with Abraham even after they saw the signs that he had done before them from Egypt until now because of their unbelief God was ready to strike them with pestilence and disinherit them so he told Moses I'll raise up a greater nation from your seed so could it be possible that God would go back on his covenant I don't believe so. I believe it would actually go against the very nature of God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Or has he spoken and he will not make good? Or Isaiah 55:11. So my word shall be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void to me, but it shall accomplish whatever I please it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. While God's heart had never changed toward Israel, he did this, I believe, to get Moses' heart to change through his intercession for the people. First, Moses reasoned with God, if you do this, what would the world think? How about the Egyptians? And what would they say to the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Malachites, those who are in the promised land? And then verses 18 through 19, Moses prayed back to God. 
the very words that God proclaimed about himself. I think this is a good way to pray sometimes. We can't think of words to say. Just pray the word of God. What Moses did was pray a section, and you find this throughout bits and pieces in the Psalms, in the Old Testament. When Moses asked to see God's glory, and the Lord passed before Moses, put his hand, first hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over his face, his glory went by him, he removed the hand, he saw the back side or afterglow of God, the back of God or the afterglow of God. God exclaimed his name there as he passed before Moses. And this is part of what Moses prayed back to God. That comes from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses prayed a portion of this. And I believe Moses was saying, look, Lord, don't wipe them all out. Those who are guilty, then judge the guilty. But don't wipe them all out. For I know that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you are long-suffering. Let's look at that. Here in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, people often think about God's righteousness that results in his judgment against our sins. But here in the declaration of God's name, he has this eightfold declaration of his name. So Yahweh complete. Yahweh declares about himself that he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's abounding in goodness, he's abounding in truth, he's merciful, faithful, and just. So an eightfold declaration of his name in the declaration of Yahweh. Yahweh is compassionate. It's a Hebrew word that is translated as merciful in the King James uh, it means it's translated as merciful in the New King James for us, but it's a word that means he's full of compassion. It's a word that speaks in the Hebrew. It speaks about the natural bond like a mother should have toward her baby. That God is merciful. He has this compassion. Yahweh is also gracious. It's a Hebrew adjective that the root of this Hebrew noun means to bend or to stoop in kindness to an inferior. And so someone of greater statue bending, stooping in kindness to someone of lesser statue. Gail Irwin, a renowned Calvary Chapel speaker, author, described this word as giving us what we do not deserve. God is gracious. Yahweh is long-suffering, number three. This word comes from the Hebrew word that speaks about uh, patience or being slow. But properly, part of this, it's a compound Hebrew word, so part of it means to, uh, we get this idea of flaring the nostrils. So if you've ever seen somebody just get so mad and they, they kind of, you can see it in their face. They flare their nostrils. You can see it in their eyes. And so the idea of this is God is slow to flare his nostrils in anger. He is slow to anger. He's long-suffering. Number four, Yahweh abounds in goodness. The Hebrew word uh, speaks about abundant in quantity. It could speak about size, age, number, rank, quality, but abundance. He abounds in goodness, so he's abounding in kindness, the second half of that. And again, Gail Irwin would say of this Hebrew word that's translated as mercy most often in the Bible. 
Yahweh also abounds in truth. So it's a word that refers to stability or certainty, trustworthiness. He abounds in mercy for thousands. Um, here, translated as mercy, he abounds in mercy. But we've already seen this word translated for us because it's the first. So we have a Hebrew word used twice in the declaration of God. The Lord God, going back to Exodus 34, 6, the Lord God is merciful. And then he comes back to it again, keeping mercy for thousands. Same Hebrew word, but described here in keeping mercy for thousands. He's merciful, keeping mercy for thousands. Yahweh abounds in truth. It Again, we already said that. Stability, certainty, truth. I got backed up in my notes. And Yahweh is forgiving. So it's a word that means to lift. And so think of someone who is seeking repentance. They're on their knees. And forgiving, it means to lift them up again. Whether speaking about human or divine forgiveness, it, it means a release of the debt. But finally, Yahweh is just. In his justice, God cannot clear the guilty. And so those who sin against the Lord will be judged. So today, Yahweh's attributes, the fact that he's compassionate, great in mercy, that he's gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, or the keeper of mercy, finding forgiving transgression and justly condemning the guilty, they're exhibited through his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus declared, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of them works themselves. So John 14, 9 and 11. Jesus basically saying, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Moses asked God to forgive the people as he has done since delivering them from the promised land. From Egypt until now, Lord, Lord, this, their rebellion is nothing new to you, Lord. Just do it one more time. Forgive them one more time. I believe this is a great example for our own prayer life. Sometimes we may find words hard to pray. We just don't know how to pray for a certain person, individual, situation. And when we find a difficult time in praying, let's just... Sit down, read the word, and as the Lord lays his word upon your heart, pray it back to the Lord. Standing and resting in the promises of God, that's a very good place for us to be. So God responds to Moses' intercession. 20 through 25, the Lord said, I've pardoned according to your word. I've pardoned them. But truly, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Don't worry about my testimony before the world. Moses was arguing, reasoning with God, saying that, what will Egypt think? What will the Canaanites think? What will the Amorites think? God said, truly, my glory shall fill the earth. Because all these men who have seen my glory, verse 22, and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me now to the test these ten times. God was keeping count. It's interesting. They had 10 plagues in Egypt and now 10 times in the wilderness, the children of Israel had tested the Lord. Have not heeded my voice, verse 23, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who reject me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and his holy follow has followed me fully. I will bring him into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So God is bringing them back to the wilderness. So first, Yahweh let Moses know that the whole earth would one day be filled with his glory. We find this Habakkuk 2.14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. 
Well, that's still future, but God promised Moses that the whole earth will see my glory one day. Second, though the Lord pardoned Israel, he did not mean that he would not judge them. This was because they had tested the Lord these 10 times, and sadly, they had failed the test. And those who had come against the Lord at this point refused to heed the voice of God to enter into the promised land, and they would never step foot into the promised land. Their children would, but those who were 20 years old and above who disobeyed the Lord would not. Only Joshua and Caleb would have that privilege. Even Moses, not yet, but even Moses would not be allowed to enter the promised land. Psalm 81, 11 through 13, but my people would not heed my voice and Israel wouldn't have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. So we continue in verse 14. This is a long chapter. Picking up in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil generation who complained against me? I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do. What did they say earlier? It'd been better if we died in the wilderness. You got your prayer. Just as you said, so I will do. The carcass of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephthunah and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have despised. But as far as you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity. That's an important verse. We're going to come back to that. And bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear the guilt one year, namely 40 years. You shall know my rejection. And the, I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in the, this wilderness, they shall be consumed and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing the bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. It doesn't tell us what the plague was, but they immediately were judged. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb uh, remained alive. Got tired of reading his dad's name. Joshua and Caleb remained alive of the men who went and spied out the land. So the chapter finishes with God judging the ten spies for the bad report, causing the children of Israel to disobey God. Also causing the children of Israel then to remain in the wilderness for a full 40 years, and after hearing their punishment, they would attempt, we'll read about it, to possess the land, but it would be too late. I've often heard people say about their sin, I'm not hurting anybody. You know, it doesn't matter. But you know, that's never true. Verse 33, the people said, what about our children? We're going to die and they'll become slaves, our wives and our children. And what did God say? Because of your rebellion, verse 33, your sons shall be shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity. So God didn't necessarily judge the children, but the children had to pay the cost of their parents' unfaithfulness to the Lord and bear the brunt of that unfaithfulness there in the wilderness when they could have I was thinking about this, and I don't think I ever thought about it this way. The parents 
should have been the warriors to conquer the promised land. They refused to go, so the children had to be those warriors. Maybe it was good for the children to be warriors. God would never let them take all the land at once. He always wanted them to know war. We'll get to that. But although the sons, Ezekiel 18, 20, shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son, it doesn't mean that decisions made by parents will not impact their children. And the choices we make in life impact not only family, friends, but even strangers. The whole nation was impacted by the decision of these 10 men who refused to enter into the promised land. We should instead, Proverbs 12, 28, ponder the path of our feet and consider our ways. Proverbs 12, 28, in the way of righteousness is life and in its pathway there is no death. The way of righteousness is life. Proverbs 4, 26 and 27, I like verse 26. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or left. Remove your foot from evil. Think about it, what you're doing and the impact that it'll have on your own life and those you love most. So their disobedience came as a high cost. The 10 men already died by some plague. But Moses spoke these words to the children of Israel, verse 39. And the people mourned greatly. They rose up early the next morning, went to the top of the mountain and said, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. For we have sinned. So it's good. They mourned. Mourning about sin is good. They confessed their sin. But here's what's not good. Though they transgressed the commandment of the Lord, verse 41, Moses said, Now why have you... He's, they're further transgressing. They're already sinned, but now they're sinning again. Now, why do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned away from the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presume presumed to go up on the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. So that brings us to the end of the chapter. After hearing the judgment, they mourned, they confessed, but then they didn't submit to the will of God. God's will for that generation, you're going to die in this wilderness. So at that point, the best thing that they could do for their children would be to prepare them to enter the promised land. And therefore, they were defeated by their enemies. They presumed that God would be with them, but they went to battle without the ark of God and without Moses leading them. They have been roaming around that wilderness with God always leading them. But now they stepped out on their own. And it would cost them their lives. So instead of Kadesh Barnea being a place of victory, to them it became a place of defeat. Father, there's much to learn from these two chapters. And I believe, Lord, and perhaps in a spiritual way, we have often come to a place like Kadesh Barnea. Maybe it's been a physical place in our lives. Maybe, Lord, it's totally been spiritual. But there's been a battle, a call from you to go a certain way, a certain direction, to not do something. Here we find in these two chapters that first, the children of Israel did not do what you commanded them to do. And second, the children of Israel attempted to do what you commanded them not to do. So they were guilty on both sides. Their timing was horrible. Lord, no doubt we're often guilty of this as well. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are long-suffering, that you are gracious, that you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger. And help us, Lord, to stand strong in our faith in the generation that we live in, 
And help us, Lord, to do so for our children and for our grandchildren. Help us, Lord, to set the example, not the example of what it means to not follow you, but the example of what it means to be a Christ follower in the 21st century. And help us to stand strong and prepare our children for whatever may lay before us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.